all that comes from grassroots support and from local support, and that's advocacy. So it's important that we all continue to take our local officials and our federal officials to see affordable housing development so that they know what affordable housing actually is versus what they think it is. That's the roadblock right there. Welcome to Buzz House, a Baker Tilly podcast where you can find all the buzz around multifamily housing. I'm Don Bernard, the partner in charge of Baker Tilly's multifamily housing practice. And I'm Garrett Gibson, a partner at Baker Tilly, also specializing in consulting on multifamily housing transactions across the country. Each week, we'll bring you a guest or a topic in the multifamily housing industry that will help you win now and anticipate tomorrow. Let's get started. Today, our guest in the Buzz House is our good friend, friend of the industry and well-known industry advocate, David Gasson. Thank you very much, David, for joining us today. It is my pleasure. Very good. He's representing the Housing Advisory Group, as many of you are aware. Uh, the Housing Advisory Group's mission is to educate members of Congress, senators, their staffs, and administration officials on the value of the low-income housing tax credit program and affo- other affordable housing programs. We're going to be talking with David today on a variety of topics related to what is going on in D.C. surrounding the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act, which I know many of you have your eyes on, the infrastructure bill, which is in the headlines every day, an American jobs plan, and the HUD budget, and probably almost as important and more importantly, how to get involved with supporting the aforementioned items. Again, uh, Garrick and I are very, very excited to jump in with David. A lot of, a lot of good things to get to. So David, before uh, Garrick and I get into some detailed questions, if you could give some of our listeners a little bit of insight in your background and really your, the work of the, the Housing Advisory Group. Sure, absolutely. And, and again, it's, it's a pleasure to be with you guys today. I am a creature of politics. I've been in politics my entire life, and it, which culminated in working on Capitol Hill for 10 years. I worked on, on the Hill from 1985 to 1995, give or take. Started off in the House, working for the House Democratic leader, Dick Gephardt, and then was very fortunate to get recruited and come work for Senator George Mitchell, the Senate Majority Leader from Maine. And that w- it was a different time back then. The Capitol Hill was a different place. People got along. It was very bipartisan. They had their arguments, but they left those on the floor of the House and the Senate and afterwards would often get together. I tell the story often about how when I was working for Senator Mitchell, we had the Congressional Softball League and we were playing Senator Helms' team, Jesse Helms in North Carolina, which some of your listeners might remember who Jesse Helms was. And he was on the Senate Appropriations Committee, and it was budget time like it is now, and he couldn't field an entire team. So we gave him some of our players from Senator Mitchell's team, and the deal was whoever won won, no matter who was playing for whichever team. And unfortunately, it seems like those days have gone by the by. It's not (laughs) the same place it used to be. So I worked on Capitol Hill for 10 years. And then got married and wanted to relocate up to Massachusetts and was fortunate enough to hook up with Herb Collins, Jack Manning of Boston Capital, where I had 25 wonderful years until the company was sold last year and now have started a new business with my colleague and someone familiar to all of you, Bob Moss, who many of your listeners might know. But through that entire time, continue to be executive director of the Housing Advisory Group. So continue to advocate for affordable housing. As I tell people, we proudly go out and preach the gospel of affordable housing. Doing that to this day, and and I'm happy to be with you guys today to talk about what's going on today on Capitol Hill. Thank you, David. Those are some fun stories as well. I love the softball story. 
David, given your your work with like policymakers and obviously the administration in DC, and again, I think the first thing we want to get to is just you know this this one trillion dollar infrastructure package, which seems to be a, this kind of bipartisan package. What is just again to start out with? What is in this package, and are there is there anything in limbo? Is it look like it's a done deal? Any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good question, and, and let's frame things the way they are because there's a lot of language going around as to what is being done and what's being worked on, and people of infrastructure all over the place. Perfect, yeah. So um, today, for instance, the House will vote on the Highway Transportation Infrastructure Bill. Now, this is an authorizing bill. This is something they have to pass every few years, which reauthorizes funding for highway transportation water projects throughout the country. It's it's done. And it's something that expires at the end of September. So this is something that both the House and the Senate need to act on that is not the same, but is actually because of the Congress is actually in the administration or dealing with infrastructure is very much in line with what they're talking about on the big picture with infrastructure. So the House will vote on that today. That will then become a piece of the larger infrastructure package that is in the news that everybody's talking about, but is still kind of like this big thing out there that people use to talk about a lot of different things, but things that some ways are not in conjunction with each other. And we'll get into that. So the, the trillion dollar package you're talking about, the $1.2 trillion package is the, the bipartisan package that the president has been working with a group of 10 Republicans, nine Democrats, and one independent in the Senate, and I think there might be 21 members now, I'm not sure, but basically the bipartisan package. And, and that is largely hard infrastructure, traditional infrastructure. The Democrats and Republicans look at this in different ways in the context of what counts as infrastructure. And the package that they're talking about now in the bipartisan bill, the $1.2 trillion package, we're talking about roads, bridges, we're talking about railroads and rail lines and additional rail and potentially high speed rail. We're talking about bus lines and electrification of bus lines. We're talking about electric vehicles in general, including cars and trucks. We're talking about electric charging stations, like all over the country for both sets of vehicles, buses, trucks, and automobiles. We're also talking water infrastructure, we're, and they've included broadband and of course the power grid. So a lot of that is traditional. Some of it's kind of new on the electric vehicle side. But those are the provisions that are largely being dealt with inside the bipartisan bill, the one that has been in the news quite a bit lately, the $1.2 trillion package. Now, what's going to happen with that? We have to wait and see. Senator McConnell has an amazing amount of sway. Obviously, he's proven that through the years with his Republican conference. I have one of those people simply because of history. And I always base, you know, I try to base what I think might happen on what has happened in the past. I am somewhat skeptical as to whether or not the bipartisan bill will end up being enacted because I'm not yet convinced that there are 10 Republicans that if Senator McConnell says, you know what, politically, not policy-wise, because policy is always second fiddle. Politically, is this good for us as a Republican conference? And I'm not sure he will let or ask his members to vote for it or vote against it. And so I'm going to be skeptical that they'll get 10 Republicans to vote for this. And they need 10 Republicans. Remember the numbers in the Senate. There are 50 Republicans. There are 50 Democrats. Democrats control the Senate because of President Biden and Vice President Harris. Vice President Harris is the tie-breaking vote as the president pro tem of the Senate. So they need 10 Republicans. They need 60 votes in order to pass anything um, outside of reconciliation in the Senate. So 
I would very much like them to pass this bipartisan bill because I think it makes what we're going to talk about next easier to get done and get this hard infrastructure off the table. But I will believe it when I see it, that, that they will get 60 votes in the Senate and pass this bill. I do believe if they do pass the bill, they will be able to get it through the House and pass it through the House and to the president's desk. So that, that's what's in the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that's being discussed as part A right now. Got it. No, that was really, really helpful for us and, and our listeners, David. But yeah, kind of given that, you know, moving as you kind of alluded to the, the $4 trillion American jobs plan, you know, we know there's a number of housing, you know, provisions in there. Can you maybe give us your, your thoughts and insight into what is that process going to look like if we think this, this hard infrastructure might be a challenge to get past? Is there a different path? Is there a path to, to, to this $4 trillion American jobs plan? Okay. And so, and let's define all this as well, too, because we're talking about the American jobs plan, but that's actually President Biden's infrastructure plan. Congress has their own ideas. uh, Those members are coming up with their own infrastructure ideas and what they want to do. And what the job is now is to meld the administration proposals with what members of Congress want to do and come up with the legislation. As we've always said, and as a former staffer from the Hill, the administration proposes, but Congress drafts and passes. So it's actually the administration suggested what they like the agenda to be. And here are some items they would like to get done. But Congress saying, that's really great. We appreciate that. Now let us do our job. And we're going to start to draft all the legislation and come up with what the bill is actually going to be. Housing, Don, is a perfect example of that. The administration, as part of the American Jobs Plan, has proposed, let's take the tax credit proposal for the low-income housing tax credit, this idea of allocating tax credits to high-opportunity areas, to try to get more affordable housing in high-opportunity areas. And and it's an opportunity housing dollar credit amount. So it's kind of like a different way to allocate credits, additional credits, and the, and the administration is proposing $55 billion in additional credits allocated over five years, so $11 billion a year to high opportunity areas. Well, Don, that's not what we as an industry and our advocates on the Hill have been working on for all this time as part of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. We've been working on a proposal that would increase the 9% credit by 50% over two years that would reduce the 50% test down to 25% to be able to get 4% credits for deals and through bond financing, and then 25 other provisions in the AHCIA. We do deal with what the president wants to do with high opportunity areas in a different way. We do it through a basis boost. So we're specifically through the AHCIA proposing a basis boost for developments and opportunities in high opportunity areas that would bring affordable housing and those tenants into high opportunity areas. So we're kind of tackling the same problem, but through a different way. I say all that so that people can keep separate what they're hearing in the news in regards to the American Jobs Plan and then what Congress finally comes up with, which will be done through the reconciliation process. So the administration's plan is kind of like a suggestion Congress is going to actually draft the legislation, and it might be very different, but include pieces of what's in the American Jobs Plan from the administration. And hopefully that makes sense to everybody. Yeah, that was very helpful. Yeah, thanks, David. That's very clear. So, you know, in keeping with that discussion on specific housing plans, 
Can you tell us maybe what the big pieces of that Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act that actually may be included in the aforementioned reconciliation package? And uh, are there any other housing provisions that may be included? Yeah, Gary, and that's a good question because reconciliation is the big issue. This is the process by which they plan on passing this bill. And, and it's gonna be a challenge for them because reconciliation has rules. You have to have a budgetary impact in order to be able to be passed in the reconciliation process. That's why it's called budget reconciliation. The budget obviously has a budgetary impact on the treasury. So that's why they do the budget through reconciliation. But when you start including all these other non-budgetary issues in there, they have to abide by the same rules. And it's the bird rule. People have heard about this if they pay attention like us crazy people do that do politics and policy on the bird rule. And if you don't have a budgetary impact, then you can't be included in a reconciliation bill. So Garrick, to your question specifically about the AHCIA, we are going to have this issue when it comes to what we can include from the AHCIA through the reconciliation process. Now, obviously, the increase in the 9% program will count because that's going to take more resources in order to allocate more credits. The 50% increase in the program, that can go through reconciliation. A reduction of the 50% test will count because obviously that's going to exercise more private activity bonds. That will have a budgetary impact. And then in our opinion, the basis boosts that are included in the AHCIA, they have a budgetary impact as well because they will allow people to exercise both four and 9% credits and that has an impact. So those things will be able to get through. But a lot of the provisions in the AHCIA are largely regulatory or changing the Section 42 statute in some way or another, and they may not have a budgetary impact. So we might find out as things go through the process and they go through what we call the bird bath vis-a-vis -vis the bird rule, they might not make it through and we will have to save those for another day and they might not be passed through the reconciliation bill. So that is something that we are working with, working with the tax writing committees and the appropriation committees with now as they're writing the appropriations bills and, and start to finalize the tax bills. That's something we'll be working with. In the context of other housing provisions, um, Garrick, one thing that we're waiting for is Senator Wyden, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, is going to introduce his DASH Act, D-A-S-H, and that's the, I'm going to I'm try to remember what the DASH stands for. It's Decent and Safe Affordable Housing Act. And in that is going to be something that we've been working on for quite some time, the MITEC, the Middle Income Housing Tax Credit. And that will be a tax credit to build housing for AMIs between 60 and 100%. We're very excited about that. So many people around the country are excited about that. It addresses this missing middle that all of us have dealt with for a long time, this housing that has no appropriations and no programs geared towards it, but that is having a hard time finding housing, especially in these cities that are seeing these booms. It's hard to find housing for these folks at 60% to 100% of AMI. The MyTech from the last version that I saw will be able to use in conjunction with the LIHTC, both the nine and the 4% credit. So you can do a LIHTC, MyTech development you be able to do a MyTech market rate development. So that's something that people are really excited about. The Neighborhood Homes Investment Act will be included, I believe, in the DASH Act that Senator Wyden's introducing. And that is a program specifically, a tax credit, to incentivize the redevelopment of blight, of, of these single family homes, no matter what kind, 
that are in cities and suburbs around the country that are sitting there for the reason that it costs more to redevelop them than, it, than they could potentially get at sale price. And so this program is geared towards getting lower income and moderate income people into home ownership. So redeveloping, say, row houses, uh, you know, old brownstones in New London, Connecticut that have been sitting there vacant and getting private, private dollars in there, similar to the loan income housing tax credit, and it's modeled after the loan income housing tax credit, getting dollars in there to invest in the rehabilitation or reconstruction of these properties to offset the difference between what the development cost would be and what the sale price would be, which could be lower than what it would cost to redevelop these properties. And then that would be the discount that would also make it affordable for people at lower and moderate incomes. So Senator Wyden and a lot of folks are really excited about that. And there's going to be a lot of other provisions in there. I can't really speak to it because we haven't seen the final language, but we do expect Senator Wyden to introduce that piece of legislation when they return from the July work period sometime after July 12th. And so we look forward to seeing what's in that bill. Some of those provisions will also be able to be passed through the Reconciliation Act. And then there are a number of other ones that people are introducing as well. So we have to kind of wait and see as the bills are constructed in the tax writing committees, in the banking and house financial services committees, which are going to be looking at programs on the appropriated side of housing to see what folks come up with. And as they start to put those bills together in the next month or two. There's a lot of really, really good information out there. I think that my tech is, is really interesting. I was glad you talked about that. It's my, my home state, Wisconsin, is actually looking at a state my tech credit right now. There's some draft legislation, so it seems to be an interesting trend. Yeah, David, and you know, thanks for that, that just clear, great explanation of how all this is playing out and how it works. You know, this is great stuff. If all this stuff gets passed, it, you know, to me, it just seems like such a great modernization of housing policy, you know, nationally. So given all of that, that we just discussed so far, you know, we feel success is much needed, you know, and with, with housing provisions comes from strong advocacy. And I know this is an area that you focus on as well. So what can our listeners do to support all this legislation? Well, you know what? It's a great question and it's passion of mine. As I said, I preach the gospel of affordable housing all over the country and we, we definitely need more apostles out there to be doing it. Now, we've been very successful. I mean, the three of us can go back and remember a day where if you were trying to make an appointment to see somebody at the local level or in D.C., to say you wanted to talk about affordable housing, you get a roll of the eyes and it's like, oh, God, really? I mean, all right. And it, it, and it was a tough haul. And you look today and we're in the news. The president talks about affordable housing when he addresses Congress and when he's on the road. It's hard to find a member of Congress who doesn't know what the loan housing tax credit is. And the irony of that, it's kind of funny, <laughs> but part the last provision of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act is changing the name of the program. And I'm one of those people that's saying, let's not do that one. Let's not do that because everybody finally knows what the loan housing tax credit is and they support it. You know, we have very strong bipartisan support. The last thing we need to do is change the name and confuse policymakers. But we've come a long way. Now, that's not to say that we're still not in competition with with a lot of other things out there. And and, and Garrick, you hit the you hit the nail on the head. This this is a once in a generation opportunity we have not only for infrastructure in this country, but for housing. We have gotten a lot of things done for housing over the years, fixing the nine, fixing the four, ending the AMT offset for affordable housing so that we can offset 
um, AMT tax on the corporate side, J just a myriad of things we've gotten done over the last 25, 30 years, but we've never been able to get a laundry list of things done on behalf of affordable housing in one time, probably not since the Housing Economic Recovery Act of 2009, where we got a lot of stuff done. And this could make that look de minimis if, if we can get some of this big stuff done. So all of that comes from having the support in DC. And a lot of the support in DC comes from having the local support. So that's why when we had the mayor's letter, we, we did a mayor's letter in support of the AHCIA, where we had hundreds of mayors from around the country send a letter to the leadership of the House and the Senate supporting the passage of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. We've gotten governors engaged at that level. We've gotten local officials calling their federal officials and letting them know that this is important. It's why the administration knows that both on the tax side and the appropriation side, it's important for them to include housing as part of the larger infrastructure package that came out of the administration. All that comes from grassroots support and from local support and that's advocacy. So it's important that we all continue to take our local officials and our federal officials to see affordable housing development so that they know what affordable housing actually is versus what they think it is. That's the roadblock right there. Because once we get somebody to a property and they see what affordable housing is, I mean, I remember this story from back in the day, my early days at Boston Capital, where we took a member of Texas down to see an affordable housing development outside of Houston. And he finally arrived and he says, what are we doing here? And we're like, well, Congressman, we wanted to show you this wonderful affordable housing development. He says, no, I know that. I want to see it. What are we doing here? This isn't affordable housing. It was this beautiful development. And he says, well, Congressman, actually, this is 100% affordable housing development. He says, no, it's not. We had to convince him that this property that he thought was market rate housing and that everything that he drove by that looked like this, he thought was market rate housing, that it was actually affordable housing. It was built with low-income housing tax credits. It's seen as believing. It's what former Ways and Means Chairman Dave Kemp said. When his colleagues see affordable housing, they become believers. And, and Donna Garrick, I'll tell you, through the years, it would be hard to find a member of Congress that we got to an affordable housing development that after seeing what your clients and, and my clients and our colleagues and our members develop around the country, that these members of Congress don't jump on board because they didn't know that that's what affordable housing is. That's advocacy. That is all advocacy. And, and we have almost 100% success rate when we do that. So I cannot emphasize enough how important it is that when the folks listening to this podcast, when they're developing a property, that they get their local officials, they get the community leaders, and they get their federal officials out to see the development. They invite them to have a town meeting there. They take them on a tour. You meet the residents who live there and you find out the differences it made in their lives, that's what helps me get this legislation passed in Washington because they want more of that once they know what it is. They love affordable housing once they find out what affordable housing actually is. Okay, David, that was, those are some really good real life examples and tips and hopefully our listeners and, and we all take that to, to heart as well. A few more maybe questions, maybe changing the topic a little bit. We, you know, briefly discussed in, in, in leading up to this, the appointing of Sandra L. Thompson as acting director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency. Is there anything, you know, the housing advisor group, you are working with the director, anything, you know, you want to share on that front? Well, we're not working immediately with the acting director. We, we had had quite a bit of dialogue with her predecessor, Mark okay. Labry, who we've known for some time. I, I will say that the Supreme Court ruling a couple weeks ago was significant 
for the affordable housing industry, because one of the things that we've been working on for quite some time as well was bumping up the equity investment limits that both Fannie and Freddie had through the Dirty to Serve program. As people who are familiar with that probably know right now, each of the GSCs are able to invest up to half a billion dollars annually in economic development, specifically low-income housing tax credits through duty to serve. And and many of us have wanted those limits to be raised um, um, to a billion dollars each, which still wouldn't hit the 5% cap that they have that they're allowed to invest in, but we wanted it to be a billion dollars. Well, I've been having conversations with the administration on that and advocates on the Hill, members who feel the same way we do on the Hill with the authorizing committees, which would be banking and financial services. And now with the administration having the acting director in there and potentially President Biden appointing and and getting confirmed a director of FHFA, the overseer, the conservator of the GSEs, we feel somewhat confident now that we will see those equity investment limits up to a billion dollars each for Fannie and Freddie. So that's something we're very excited about because it goes into the whole issue of resources. If we're successful in the context of getting more resources through whatever passes as infrastructure by the end of the year, we're going to need the demand for those resources. So uh, an additional billion dollars into the marketplace and equity investment, especially in in hard to serve communities and difficult to develop areas through Fannie and Freddie will be helpful in the context of utilizing those resources. Well, thank you for that. David, maybe just real quickly on, it's not tax credit per se, but you know some HUD budget provisions. There may be some, some things that came out. We saw some higher dollars. Any, any key provisions in the proposed HUD budget that, that stands out to you? Yeah. And again, Don, I will emphasize that the president's budget is the administration's request for funding. We have to wait and see what Congress actually comes up with. I find it hard to believe that this Congress doesn't largely see the the, the budget the same way the president does. I think they very much want to amp up funding for HUD. If I had to single out one, well, obviously increases in home and CDBG are significant. and, And that's in the proposal. And I believe we'll see that out of Congress, although I'm not I'm I'm not going to get ahead of myself on that. But the single biggest piece that we were really taken aback in a positive way was the administration proposing for the first time, and I think, and I could be wrong, someone correct me, but but I think maybe 20 years, 10 budget cycles, is an increase in project-based rental assistance. I think the administration proposed $2 billion in new project-based rental assistance and project-based vouchers, which is significant. I mean, we've needed an increase in the Section 8 program for some time. We all know what the backlog is on people who need housing that could use vouchers. And the administration proposing a significant increase in project-based vouchers was a big win. And hopefully that's a win that we will see come to fruition at the end of the year when they, when they, when they vote on the budget. But in general, we were very pleased with the president's budget. I think it was somewhere around $9 billion, which would be around a 15% increase over the pre- previous budget cycle. We do have to wait and see what Congress ends up doing, but we're, we're, as we are with infrastructure and everything that's being proposed on the, on the tax side for housing, we're very optimistic in the context of what Congress will end up doing and the president will end up signing on the budgetary side when it comes to HUD. So yeah, we're excited to see where the numbers end up being. When I saw that in that budget, that was, you know, my eyes start to get 
large and said, wow, that's that's a first <laughs> for a long time. And this has been a great discussion and we we certainly appreciate the insight. I do have a couple, you know, just a quick questions before we wrap up. And we work a great deal, obviously, in affordable housing space, especially the live tech area. And we know that, that, you know, a lot of sensitivities with investors in the market comes with the corporate tax rate. So what are you hearing on the potential corporate tax rate increase and are there any other type of tax provisions that, that, that are worth mentioning before we wrap up? Okay, absolutely, Gary. And I should have prefaced this at the very beginning of the conversation, but especially when it comes now to talk about pay-fors, you know, the tax potential tax increases and how they're going to pay for a lot of this. I, I'm going to disclaimer for everybody listening to the podcast. Nobody knows what's going to happen. I certainly do not know what's going to happen. I don't think you can find a member of Congress going all the way up to the Speaker or the President of the United States who can tell you what's going to happen at the end of the year. It's a process, and we'll wait and see. We're very optimistic now, but I tell people, you know, until the president signs a bill or bills, nothing is certain. And of course, as affordable housing people, we've seen that in the past. We've become victim of our own expectations only to have them dashed at the last minute. So let me preference what I'm going to say, and actually what I've said so far in that regard. I'm very optimistic about this year, but Let's wait and see what the final bill says with with President Biden's signature on it. On the tax side, everybody, of course, is aware that the administration and folks in Congress are talking about raising the corporate rate back up to 28 percent from the from its current level of 21 percent. We are going to need a lot of revenue to pay for a lot of what they want to do. But the realist in me, I'm skeptical of a 28% corporate rate, I think the reality is they might be more successful targeting 25% corporate rate. Um, You guys are accountants. You probably know the the math better than I do. But my last recollection is, is that when they did the math on the corporate rate, every percentage point on the corporate rate equals somewhere around $700 million. So you can do the math there. If they get it from 21% to 20%, 5%, that's four percentage points that they're going to raise the corporate rate. That would raise a significant amount of income or revenue to help pay for the bill. But right now, you can you can put it on the books. July 1st, David Gasson says at the end of this debate, when they're all done, his prognostication is that we will have a corporate rate at 25%. The other thing we're looking at is this new 15% minimum book value tax. I'm just in shorthand calling it a 15% AMT. You know, and, and it's a blanket AMT. You, and, and there's a, there's a silver lining in this AMT for us as housers, and I'll get to that. But th- they're very determined to do this. I've spoken to both sides of the hill, um, the tax writing committees on both sides, because this is an administration proposal. But both the Senate Finance Committee and House Ways and Means and Committee are working on a similar proposal to have a 15% AMT. So I think there's a decent shot that they will get this done as well and that they'll be able to get the votes in the House and the Senate to do that. And in the end, and everybody's probably read these articles, you guys might have written something for Baker Tilly on this, but um, in the end, we think that it's gonna cover those 45 corporations or so that have been able to avoid paying any federal corporate tax in the United States. They've been able to find ways to avoid paying taxes and that's who this is targeted towards. So it could be a significant raise for revenue on this infrastructure package and the reconciliation package. And then finally, um, the one that I'll speak to is the BEAT, the Base Erosion Anti-Abuse Tax there's going to be a rewrite of that. They're working on that in both the House and the Senate side as well. 
and obviously that that is a tax geared towards entities that are owned by offshore entities or people that are able to shelter income offshore to make sure that they're paying their fair share of taxes. Now, how that affects housing is that you could use LIHTC to offset that, but only up to a certain percentage. You guys correct me if I'm wrong, but I think 80% of your LIHTC liability you could use to offset on that. But it was also set to expire in the context of low-income housing tax credit and some of the other business credits in 2025. So on the beat, I'll go backwards now. On the beat, the bill is being rewritten that will allow you to offset 100% or or you'll be able to offset beat with 100% of your LIHTC tax credits and also basically all your other general business credits. So your general business credits will be able to offset beat and that they are doing away with, from the last version I saw, they are doing away with the 2025 date where it would end. It would be in perpetuity. So, so that will go away. On the 15% AMT, you will be able to offset, those corporations will be able to offset that AMT with general business credits, including the low-income housing tax credit. So again, that is a boon for us. Because with all this potential supply out there, if we're successful in getting the 50% increase in the nine and a reduction of the 50% test and some of these other provisions, we're going to have much more supply, a greater supply of tax credits. Here's the demand side of it. So between raising the corporate rate, the 50% AMT and revisions to the beat, all of which you'll be able to offset with low-income housing tax credits, there's our demand side, which obviously we're not excited. We, we can't say we're excited about raising taxes, okay? That, that's kind of odd to say. But it does, it does give us hope that this demand, the, the supply of credits that we're going to have will be met by an equally strong demand for tax credits. And we'll be able to hopefully maintain pricing and yields for investors and, and build a lot more affordable housing. And there you have it. <laughs> a key takeaways for me or the listeners, I think, right, Don, is advocacy and yeah. optimism, you know, and crossing your fingers. There you go. <laughs> yeah. This really is, I mean, the president has spoken about this. A lot of members of Congress that I've spoken with, they really do see this as a once in a generation opportunity. I mean, you get members who have, you know, who, who are history buffs like I am, and they're, they are looking at this in the sense of, a, a new deal and a great society and some of these other once in a generation opportunities where government really can make a difference. And when you look at infrastructure in this country, Lord knows we need the investment. Any of us who have traveled overseas and see the infrastructure that we encounter, whether we're in Europe or Asia or someplace else, and then we come back to the States and we're like, come on folks, let, let's get our act together. The president very much feels this. And, and I've spoken to friends of mine who work for the president in the administration and he is so so determined to to bring this country back up to where it needs on the infrastructure side. And and he does see this as potentially our last opportunity to do that for quite some time. I feel the exact same way, guys, on housing. We we finally have the opportunity to make a significant dent in the affordable housing crisis and the need for affordable housing in this country and do it in a way where everybody benefits. High opportunity areas, transit-oriented housing, Uh, You know, getting people in areas where there are good jobs and good education and good health care, giving them opportunities to get training, so many uh, things that can be done through this bill. So I am, Garrick, very optimistic about this, and and I'm hopeful that we can see a large portion of this done. And I can't stop without giving a shout out to my fellow advocates, you know, both in the housing advisory group, in the action campaign, which is overseen by Enterprise 
and, and the National Council of State Housing Agencies, my colleagues and friends of which I'm a member at the Affordable Housing Tax Credit Coalition, all the organizations that are part, no one alone does all this. We're, we're doing this as an affordable housing industry, including you two, by doing this podcast and getting the message out to your clients and the folks who subscribe. So I very much appreciate this opportunity and just want to say, people, keep going because it could be a very happy new year if, if, we, if we are successful in getting this package done with a lot of affordable housing included. Very good, David. Always a wealth of information. Thank you for your tireless advocacy. Thank you so much for your, your time. And it was a very busy time and joining the Buzz House today. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Buzz House. To receive a notification when new episodes are available, please subscribe to Buzz House, a Bakatelli podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For additional resources around multifamily housing, check out bakertilly.com. And if you have a suggested topic, please send them to build at bakertilly.com. That's B-U-I-L-D at bakertilly.com.